one show, but the man is Jesus. So let's pray that he's the one that is noticed most tonight. Grateful for this morning. It was a good time of worship this morning, wasn't it? And the preaching, Robert, thank you for your word. In many ways, Robert kind of inspired the direction for tonight uh, because I wasn't quite sure which direction I I was going. In fact, I've actually planned uh, sort of two possibilities tonight and decided one of these ought to stick, right? One of these ought to be about right. And um, the more I thought about what Robert revealed this morning in the text the more I wanted to go with with Colossians. Um, so we're going to look at the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1. I'll begin with this little story just about who, who Jesus is in a particular instance in my life. You, you all have stories like this, moments where where he becomes just more significant than ever before. Those instances, perhaps in church settings, but perhaps in other places where uh, it seems that a light is turned on or a revelation is given or an understanding comes that perhaps the words had been there before, but the, the depth of the understanding of those words was increased. In fact, a lot of probably what comes out of this this message tonight has to do with this deepening of an understanding of who Christ is and his role in our lives and for me I, I mean by God's grace there have been several places along the way but one that comes to mind so quickly is in April of 2010 uh, in the period of a very difficult stretch for us in fact, this may have been just a part of a series of difficult stretches. We seem to collect difficult stretches in our lives. Uh, I think that's, to some degree, seasons of life, but to some degree, life in general. But there was a season in the spring of, of that year, just over three years ago, in ministry that had gotten very, very troublesome. And I was a pastor in Maryland, and it had become evident that uh, the the vision and the direction that I felt that I had an integrity could lead this church in was not one that uh, the group of leaders surrounding me could embrace as fully as they spoke that they could. Um, sometimes we say we say things well-meaning, but when it comes down to actually doing it, 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 it becomes clear it's not it's not sinking. The gears aren't meshing. And I began to have conversations with this group of leaders about whether or not we could do that. And anyway, long story short, the season of uh, the springtime was anything but springtime for us. It was a, a real death to ministry and a death to to really, where are we going to, a vision for the future, what were we going to do? And so that particular April, I was coming here to Louisville for the second time in my life to attend the Together for the Gospel conference that was held that year. And I came out here, uh, had some interns that were with me, some pastoral interns that I brought to took a tour of the seminary because I wanted them to get a vision for coming to Louisville <laughs> to come to the school. None of them came. I did. But uh, I wanted them to have that vision. And, of course, privately and on the phone and text messages and emails to Mary, we were just sort of agonizing before God. What are you doing here, God? Where 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 are we supposed to go? And so they attended the sessions, which are always wonderful sessions. And 
the night that John Piper spoke, which always is an exciting night for me, uh, and just to hear him preach is always a gift. I sat under his preaching with my three interns sitting there beside me and knowing that my future was, if there was anything certain about it, it was that it was uncertain. And in fact, it was almost certainly not going to go well. So there was this real un, um, uneasy feeling about where, where, what are we doing? You know, where do we go from here? And then how do I take care of a family? Uh, knowing that employment probably is going to be changing and not sure where that's going to go. And so sitting there under his preaching, something remarkable happened. And I was so, um, it was so moved by it, so profoundly impacted by it, that I, ha- I just believed that something in the message had to have done this. Um, I actually went back and listened to the message again today to find out if it was that message. And I couldn't hear anything in the message that reminded me of what he was speaking. Uh, it was powerful, it was profound, but it was not the, th- it was not the things that I took away. But at the end of that experience, and you can nod if you know what I'm talking about, there was a sense in under, under the preaching of God's Word that night that clarity was coming, that vision was coming. But it was vision with, without a specific... It was almost like a painting where you began to see colors, but you still didn't know what the painting was. But you just saw a hand painting. You knew that something was coming of this. And so looking... Uh, into our uncertain future, there was just this this new sense of enthusiasm for it without knowing what you were being enthusiastic about. And in particular, there was, there was an enthusiasm for the work of Christ and His presence in our lives that was new. And it wasn't like, I mean, been a believer for, for well, let me think what it would have been at that point. I mean, it was 30 years at that point. So it wasn't that this was some, you know, some new, new season of life with Christ, but there was a new sense about this life, a new sense of enthusiasm for his place in my life. And it does seem that times of need and uncertainty push us into these places to carve out new reservoirs for Christ to fill, because we're so easily satisfied. You know, like Robert said this morning, if we tell him to go, he, he will go. Uh, but when we're desperate and we say, come, he will come. And this really carved out this place of, I need, I need you. And there he was in such a, a, a deeper way. And so I went back to try to call Mary. It was late. These sessions go typically to 10 o'clock. And I did not want to lose the sense of what God had done that night. And so I typed an email to send to her. She still has the email. And the email essentially... And we'll, I didn't bring it. I could try to paraphrase it, but the gist of it is this. I don't know where we're going from here. I don't know what we're going to do. But what I do know is we're going to do something where we are advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the most powerful force on the planet, and he is the most powerful force. And we are going to be led by him into some new adventure, and it's going to be exciting. And he's going to take care of us. That's the gist of it. Now, how did I know that? I mean, these are things we learn, right? These are facts, but we don't feel them sometimes. We don't really know them the way that Scripture teaches us to know things. Well, something happened in those moments. Something happened with a living, resurrected king named Jesus that engaged me in a way that I needed to be engaged. 
It's remarkable, isn't it? That's how you know these things are true. And experience these things where the things that we're reading here come alive. So what I want to talk about briefly tonight in Colossians 1 is the preeminence of Christ. And what Paul does here is essentially lay down the factual preeminence of Christ, but then he brings it to the, the, the sort of practitional preeminence. How is he preeminent in your life? Or how is he lacking the preeminence in your life that he deserves? In verse 15, beginning Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, I ask you to help me in these moments proclaim a message that you have for those gathered here. Lord, you know the significant sense of inadequacy I feel in particular this evening but you also know the significant sense of responsibility and affection for these people. And so my desire is that you overcome my inadequacy and show yourself brilliantly sufficient. Lord, let our time here tonight be one where we gaze upon the living Savior and have that sense that he's not just living, that he's not just alive, but that he's living in us and alive doing his work in us. So come Holy Spirit, move upon us, open our eyes, let us see and hear and know, truly know, so that we can say we'd rather have you than anything because it's most true. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, without going into which I don't have prepared, significant background to Colossians for a single message. Suffice it to say, these are good folks who are hearing a competing message about Christ. This is a church that has some voice of some kind from within or without. It's uncertain from commentators. Some say within, some say without. That's confusing the gospel. And it's confusing it from one of two sources. One, an early form of Gnosticism that's kind of messing with the understanding of, of flesh. That's becoming less common about the book of Colossians, but still some hold to that. And the other, that there is um, some form of Judaism, some form of, of uh, law-keeping or legalism that's impacting. Now, what I do know about myself and what I've learned about reading these letters is somewhere in there there's always some, some thread of self-atonement. Some thread of people trying to satisfy God on their own behalf. That's the loss of the gospel most often. 
And so there is this thread here as well, and it's, it's a powerful one. In fact, the, the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is often seen as a, a, a hymn from the church, an early hymn. In fact, outside of what we know to be the hymns of the canticles of the Gospels, uh, Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 stand as these these have to be hymns kind of text where we say, well, these people probably sang this. It sort of reads like a hymn or at least a creed of sorts. So it's often referred to as the Colossians hymn. And so these are things that needed to be recited and needed to be remembered. They're facts, but they're facts that have application that that are renewed in us regularly. You know how there's this way of knowing things without knowing them? You know when you're, like you're hearing your spouse but you're not hearing? Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You're not listening, are you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Or, or, or really having read something over and over, and I told Robert this about his message this morning. I, you know, how many times have we read that text? And I've missed the whole theme of begging Jesus. It's in there three times. The different, different perspectives begging Jesus. How did I miss that for 40 years? Or however long it's been since I've been reading the Bible. I didn't start when I was three, so a little bit less than 40 years. But even still, that's a lot of reading through this text and not seeing something. So, you know, we can see but not see. So here's facts about Jesus that are common to the church Facts that will not catch you. I don't have a new revelation of who Jesus is. That would be impossible. This is revealed here in Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this gives a sense of priority, but also gives a sense of of importance, of deity. Think about this concept of being the image of the invisible God. It's a funny word, image, to us because we can use it as several different ways. We can use it as a reflection in a very superficial way. I look in a mirror and I see an image. But that's just an image. It's not me. So that's very different than this use of the word, which is to indicate more than a reflection, but a sense of having connection to the source, being of the same substance. So when this early church uh, arguing went on uh, about who Jesus was, and in particular that led to Nicaea and the, the clarification of the Trinity, that argument was over s- this type of language. Is it similar substance, same substance? Is he truly God? Of course, the good guys won out. Yeah, same substance. He's God. Now, Hebrews tells us that you know that Jesus, that, the, that we had been spoken to by prophets and and uh, through the writings about who Jesus was, but in recent days, uh, God was revealing Himself through, rather, who God was. But in recent days, God was revealing Himself through Jesus. So it's not just that He's the image; He's the exact representation. He's the exact image. When we look at Jesus, we see God. This can be easily skipped across. In fact, I think at some level it's so profound it's impossible to grasp, at least at its depth. But it's, it's powerful to think that, that God was able to be clothed in flesh to walk among us and to give us these stories, to give us these examples of how God would look in our flesh. That's, that's actually pretty inspiring. We think about your own life, realizing that Christ 
is alive in you, what might Christ then look like in the flesh? We have these we have this illustration. What would God look like in human form? We have Christ to look at. But he's more than that, though that's sufficient. He's this remarkable duality, this combination of it being the firstborn of creation. So we have God and man together in Christ. So we see in the attributes of an invisible God, and then we also recognize the attributes in us. He got tired. I, I get tired. How does God handle getting tired? Well, God, per se, doesn't get tired. But the way he was manifested in Christ shows us. Or when he's tempted. Or when he's met with lies. The, 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 all the things, in every way, even as we are tempted. Christ was tempted, yet he without sin. So this, this fusion for us to know God, but also know the way he created us. So we have image of invisible God. We have the firstborn of all creation, which also then speaks to an inheritance of creation. It was not just that he wore flesh, but that all flesh was created by him. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is uh, just one of the more profound thoughts about Christ to me. We have this sort of circular picture that everything comes from him, but it's coming back for him. And then it's not just that he's at these destination points of beginning and end, but that he's sustaining. For by him they are sustained. So he's the source of all things. He's the end of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. So, who do I need for this life? I need the source, the end, and the sustainer. I need Christ. So in looking at this text, three things that I wanted to look at, the first of which we're in, and that is, who is Christ? Objectively. So who does Scripture say that Christ is? The second thing is, who were we? What are we being recovered from? And what did he do to offer that remedy? And then the third is, so what? What does that mean for us today? So Christ objectively is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. He is the beginning, the end, and the sustainer of all things. He's before all things, and yet in him all things hold together. If it were possible, if it were possible for Christ to sleep from this role of sustaining and holding things together, I've heard it said, I think this makes perfect sense. The very molecules, the atoms, the very elements of this existence would come apart. He is the one that holds them together. So, I mean, if my life is falling apart, seemingly, who do I need to go to? The one who holds all things together. Not just the uh, events of my life, but the very cells in my body. The very elements of this terrestrial ball that we live upon. The one who can calm the seas, no doubt, but they can also cast out demons. So it speaks to this 
this superiority, this preeminence of who he is. And and Paul just loves to do this because he gets lost in this when he writes. In fact, he, he often breaks out into song in writing. He often breaks out into doxology because of his consideration of who Christ is. Perhaps that's what happened to me that night that I'm trying to express. There was a sense where my life broke out in doxology because I saw more of Christ. I just understood what I needed to understand and the circumstances in the moment pushed me to that place of need. And therefore our life breaks out in the doxology. Those are moments that I like to call moments of grace. Those are the moments when you want to make radical decisions. I never discourage a radical decision in those moments. Now some people are just kind of jacked up all the time. They're just all the time thinking they're going to go this way and that way. And those people kind of need to be tethered sometimes. But for people like me, who tend to really cautiously evaluate and, and kind of be uh, slow, to, slow to the mark, those are moments when we take off. Because those are moments... I think, when we see most clearly. Life clouds. Life clouds the reality of who God is. It clouds the reality of who Christ is. And so when we begin to filter these other things of life through our thinking, we begin to make poor decisions. We begin to think differently. In fact, we begin to think wrongly. We begin to look at our our budget and say, well, he can't do that. We don't say that, but that's the way we're acting. Or we begin to look at our job situation and say, well, this is going poorly. It's not going, I'm I'm going to end up homeless on the street. Uh, We begin to look at our family situation and say, well, this can't be resolved. This can't be rescued. Because we forget who he is, we think more about the circumstances. And the circumstances cloud the reality of who he is. One part of this message that I listened to that struck in a different way today than than I remembered it, because I didn't remember it from three years ago, was where he was talking about some of the recent criticism of who Jesus was and the gospel that he preached. And the interesting thing about it was he knew a lot of seminary students were in the room, and he wanted to address the issue of how much is studied about historical criticism. And his encouragement to students was this. If you want to study who the Jesus of the Bible was and the gospel that he preached, read the gospels. Don't spend so much time reading what everybody's argued. Spend so much time reading the gospels. Reading who he is. And that's essentially like the, uh, the, old, the old analogy of, of uh, the counterfeit bill, the way they teach, if this is true. I don't know if this has been a classic sermon illustration for years. But the way that they treat people in the Treasury Department to recognize a counterfeit is not to show them all the different counterfeits, but they study the genuine article over and over and over and over so that they catch anything that doesn't look right right away because they know where everything's supposed to be. I don't know if that's true, but it sure is a good story. And it fits well. It's a sermon illustration. (laughs) It certainly is true about Christ. Study Him. Read Him. Dwell with Him. So, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the source of all things, the end of all things, the sustainer of all things. And He's the head of the church. Well, this, is, this speaks to a number of... And this is so chock full of 
theology. So this speaks to a number of different implications as well. But think about the reality of what it is then for us as a church to come together. Who should be central? And why... Why do we get... Well, maybe we aren't surprised. Maybe you aren't surprised. You're a pretty phenomenal group of people. But others would be surprised to look at a church that has lost their view upon Christ and then they lose their way. What happened to that church? What happened to that movement? What happened to that denomination? What happened to that group? It's, it's pretty simple when you realize what it is to lose sight of the head. Things aren't going to go well. And they never do. That's why there's such a concerted effort here and in other churches around the country by God's grace to keep Christ central. Now in our flesh, we will we'll be tempted to, to try other things. It happens all the time. This is a new thing. There was a movement... I won't be too specific with details, and you might not have ever heard of it anyway, but there was a, a flash-in-the-pan movement about four or five years ago that had everybody flocking to this one location. This happens, it's probably going on right now in several locations, where this is just sort of a seemingly movement of God. And, and people are, you know, usually is accompanied by reports of, of manifestations of the Spirit and, and this great uh, work that's being done. And, and so people will, will flock from all around. But what was unique about this one is I watched it closely enough to hear some of the verbiage coming out of it. And it wasn't altogether unlike what Colossa was dealing with. There's some issue with angels here in Colossa, and this was a similar thing. We've had that recently, a resurgence of angel worship and a resurgence of interest in angels and, and angels bringing some new revelation. So this particular speaker, I won't call him a preacher, was... was was speaking of the revelations that an angel was giving him. And the movement was being fueled by these revelations. And when asked, because these were largely evangelical types of people who were flocking to these meetings, when asked, you know, what about Christ? You don't talk much about Christ here. And he said, well, the angel told me that that was old. He wasn't doing that anymore. This is a new thing God was doing. It was beyond Christ. Well, that, that, should, that should send off the loudest alarm bells we have that this is a problem. And it's going, it's going awry. Just a matter of time. It did. It went horribly awry and no longer exists as far as I know. Though I think the personality has... I've recently seen him um, resurface in some other settings. When we take our eyes off of Christ, the head, there's no way the body can function with any health. You know, we can lose all kinds of members. We can lose an arm, a leg. We can lose certain organs, but we cannot lose our head. We cannot lose Christ. Verse 19 brings us back to sort of a, a bookend to where it began. Image of an invisible God in 15, but in 19 in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What beautiful language. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. But that then ties to the second part of this. Who we were, what he did. So again, thinking about this fusion... We're going to be talking a lot more about this as we come into this 
Christmas season. I know everybody laughed this morning because I said, you know, school and then Christmas. But that's the way a musician thinks. Uh, school starts, you better have thought about Christmas because it's too late once it does. So... Once we get into the season of Advent, we're thinking about this remarkable thing called the Incarnation of Christ. And this, this bringing together, and it is miraculous, it, it confounds the fullness of God and yet man together. But it was with purpose, and there was a reason it had to be this way. You have to have both ends of this, which is where if there was a Gnostic tendency here, and Gnosticism didn't develop a little bit later, but if it was a pre-Gnostic kind of uh, tendency here, then it, this would speak to that, that there had to be a bodily Jesus. There had to be a fleshly person named Jesus that had a body. Because that's the only way the cross would be sufficient. And that's exactly where Paul goes here. The fullness of God dwelling, and then through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this gets into an aspect of the gospel that's broader than I want to bring it to right now, but if we can think in context here of, of what it means to you, as I go back to my original illustration, how it makes peace with you, there's an aspect of kingdom here, the gospel kingdom, which is certainly appropriate. But for this illustration tonight, thinking about you and that place of him bringing you, making peace between you and God, the necessity of Christ being fullness, fully God, fully man, and in his body making peace. It is interesting to me that peace comes from this violent act which speaks to the degradation of sin, what sin had done. Because where sin is, violence is. Where sin is, death and destruction is. And so there had to be death and destruction brought to the one who would bear sin. But this juxtaposition, this language, peace. If we didn't understand the cross, this would be peculiar to us. Because what's the mantra of the day? It's choose peace, not violence. Right? It's been the mantra for generations. Yeah, choose peace. You know, because war is not the answer and violence doesn't solve anything. And if we could all just talk, we'd be okay. I have a lot of talking goes on in my home. It's not always okay. It usually breaks out into violence. <laughs> no, we... Sin has done that, and sin requires a violent end, and that violent end will come to those apart from Christ in their own, their own person. But for those in Christ, that violent end is it's not ours. That's a that's a that's an amazing thought. That he who knew no sin became sin. That, again, like the Incarnation, baffles me. How does the one who knows not sin become sin? And yet, in that act of violence called the cross, not only did that my sin become his, but his reward becomes mine. Which, again, points back to the firstborn of the church and points back to this firstborn of creation and points back to the inheritance and points back to the fact that he's God in the flesh. That he is to be preeminent. That he is preeminent. 
by fact. But how did we get to that place? I mean, this isn't, this isn't that we just sort of woke up and, oh, by the way, you send back there. And sometimes it feels that way, especially if you're a young convert, uh, young in life. But, but there's a condition that we have. And the condition is explained in 21, that you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled. One of my frustrations, and this is just, it's not really truly a frustration, it just feels this way, is that I'm saved at a young age, and so I would be enamored by testimonies, you know, that were the gang member, murderer, adulterous, drug dealing, you know. Why couldn't I have a testimony like that? Now that's, I remember in, in the youth group we had, uh, there was a crusade going on in town, and we heard two different speakers, and one was that, I mean, it was, he was just as wicked as you could imagine, and God saved him. And the other was like this good little church boy. And the worst thing he could think of he ever did was when he played soccer, he scored in the wrong goal. (laughs) But God saved him. (laughs) I don't know what he did for the team, but God saved him. Well, for the longest time, I kind of of thought, well, you know, I I don't necessarily want to experience those things, but I would certainly understand my salvation better. I mean, you know, always the kind of he who is free of much loves much. And I, I do think that that's a, that particular text is pointing to the perception of reality, not reality necessarily. Uh, sometimes we just need to understand what we really have been saved from uh, and what we really have committed. But I would look at my life and think, it's been a lot more impressive, God, if you just let me be a little bit more sinful, at least more sinful than I recognize. <laughs> And have a lot better story to tell people about what you've done in my life than to say, well, I grew up in the church and, yeah, I think I disobeyed some and I'm sure I lied somewhere along the way, but I got saved as soon as I could get, get to that point of understanding it. And then I read somebody who said, you know, that the Lord saved me from a, the life of a, a, a violent, uh, drug-dealing, uh, murdering, and this this long list of all these grievous offenses before I could do them. When I realized that, yeah, that's me, because that would have, I would have been that. I would have been that. Or I would have been worse. I would have been a Pharisee, which is probably my inclination, who would have touted my own righteousness and, 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 and tied bondage on people uh, with my, my laws, my commandments, my my sense of righteousness. The night that I discovered that I was a legalist was a mind-numbing evening. I heard a message about detecting the legalist within. Oh my goodness. I was supposed to lead a small group afterwards. I was involved in a large group, large gathering, and we broke up into small groups, and we were going to discuss the message. And I was so distracted, I could barely lead the discussion. Because what had been revealed that night was something that had been actively ongoing in my life since I could know anything was going on in my life. That I, I was attempting to earn righteousness with my performance before God. And I did not understand the gospel. I do believe I was saved. 
but I did not understand how to apply it to a daily life that was striving to please God. The problem with that type of life is the striving is never satisfied. You know, so there's never a relaxed, a relaxed legalist. There's no such thing. It's a paradox. Because how much is enough? More righteousness, or at least the perception of more. He says in verse 20, well, 21, You who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 22, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Holy and blameless. Am I holy and blameless? Well, not what you can see. <laughs> no, for the longest time from those... Um, that, that evening when I discovered I was a legalist, I thought I was getting worse rather than better. I thought sanctification has, worked, has a reverse gear. And I'm becoming less godly by the day. Knowing God's grace, by the, when, when the gospel was more fully revealed to me, when I understood it and how to apply it better, I began to see my sin more clearly. Because a legalist can't see his sin clearly. He ignores it. Or she ignores it. Because you can't handle it. You can't deal with it. You can see other people's sins just fine. In fact, there's, very, there's a lot of clarity in other people's lives. But in your own, there's such blindness. Even to the point where reality becomes a bit of an issue. Because what do you do if you acknowledge the sin that's clearly there? Where do you go with it? God, I'll try harder? Trying harder has got me into this mess. No, I'm holy and blameless in a heavenly court because I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ who died to give himself for my sins that I could have a robe of righteousness that when I stand before him on that day I'll be seen with his performance. Now there's rest in that. And there's a position to deal with my own sin from there. That's not available when I'm trying to self-atone. Which is what legalism is. I am attempting to pay the penalty for my own sins. This is the warning here at the end of this text. If, you, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is why I do think that there's some legalistic thread here for Colossae, because there is a concern that they have, like Galatia, you think about the way he introduced that letter, like you've, why are you following after a, a, another gospel, that there is no other gospel? What, who has bewitched you? Similar language here, but in a gentler way. Don't shift from the hope. 
because there's not hope anywhere else. So if you shift from that target and that goal, you will shift to hopelessness. There are other places in the letter where he does talk about performance. But he talks about them rooted here in the gospel. We have to root ourselves in the gospel. We have to root ourselves here in Christ. We have to root ourselves in who he is and who he became and what he did. Because we need that. We need him. And we need his gospel to then... The so what part of it? What do we do about that? Well, he's presented as holy and blameless, but he's on a, he's a, on a mission to conform us to that same image. And here's where performance, if you will, and that's probably not a great word here, sanctification, uh, becoming more like Christ, is more clearly seen. Because performance isn't the currency of righteousness, it's the fruit of it. So I don't, I don't labor in my sanctification hoping to earn, but I labor in the disciplines of the faith, and I seek to grow more like Christ from the position of having earned all because of Christ, of having gained all because of Christ, and understanding that I didn't earn it, He gave it to me. It's a very different motivation. So while the consternation was there initially when I heard this message about detecting the legalist, very quickly it became delight. Because the slippery slope there is not, there's not a happy side either way. The tendency on that slope of trying to self-atone is either one becomes self-righteous and arrogant, and Lord, I thank God that I'm not like other men, or condemned and hopeless, and God will never love me. And we are prone, generally, to slip off one side or the other. But there's a safe place in the middle that understands that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that place is the gospel, which brings us to Christ who is preeminent factually, but we must make him preeminent practically. So that's the application. How might Christ be more of your life tonight? How might he be more part of your walk tomorrow? How might Christ be more preeminent? How might he be seen in your own eyes more clearly? Let me pray for you. Pray for me.